Hey, this is Rich. Welcome to the Hollywood 2.0 podcast. It's been a crazy summer. I know I've missed a couple episodes, but I am back. I hope you guys missed me. I know you did, and I'm here with my co-host, as always, Peter Katz. Yo, it's Peter Katz. Today we have a great guest for you guys. His name is Josh Caldwell. He is the director of digital media for a little company called Dare to Pass, which is run by ta-da, Anthony Zyker, who you know is a creator of CSI, one of the biggest, most successful franchises in TV history. I uh, have been that for the last year, uh, working on uh, the development and production of several digital projects uh, on behalf of Anthony. And you got to his company by by way of uh, you're a, a short film writer and director yourself. And I, I was I was reading your blog, uh, very very it's a great blog by the way. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, so, from your short films, you ended up interning for his company. Is that right? Yeah. So the way to Hollywood for me has been. Uh, a decade-plus-long process. I started making films in high school and uh, had the unique opportunity um, in high school to make films for our uh, student body officers. And what we would do is make, you know, half-hour-long films that we'd show in front of the whole school at assemblies. So, and we had a, you know, we had a lab, video lab with digital cameras and avids and sort of the whole works. And, and the, the added benefit of that was I got to uh, produce movies and then show them in front of 2,000 students and get, you know, the kind of audience feedback that very few young filmmakers ever get. Um, and so that led me then on a path to, you know, looking at film schools and ultimately deciding that, I, you know, I didn't really want to, um, I'd done so much production already and sort of knew a lot that I was like, maybe there's a different experience I can have. So I went to Fordham University in New York City, um, Lincoln Center campus, which was right in the heart of New York. And got to not only sort of, you know, as a writer and director, got to experience a lot living in New York, but also just decided to pursue, you know, making little short films um, on my own rather than sort of doing it within the, the rigors of, of a academic program. So what were you studying instead of film? Uh, communications. I took, um, you know, uh, I, I studied communications in English. I took, you know, classes on film history and, and sort of the whole works, um, but really got kind of a general bachelor's degree. Um, but continued make, you know, continued producing and, and, and shooting a bunch of shorts. And so my my sophomore year, I shot a short called uh, or so, I'm sorry, my junior year, I shot a short called The Beautiful Lie uh, with the actress Michaela McManus, who has now been on um, uh, One Tree Hill and Law and Order SVU and Awake. Um, we went to school together. And so I made that film. And then when I graduated, I just finished it and I submitted it to uh, an MTVU contest uh, where the winner you know, got to win a movie award. Um, MTV Movie Award. And so I ended up getting nominated and won the award in 2006. So I got to go to the show and go up on stage and I've got a golden popcorn at home. And uh, that kind of started it. So that was like, okay, you know, now I got to move to Hollywood and I got to, you know, try to make an attempt at making making it in this business. And what I found was uh, not a lot of people in the business watched the MTV Movie Awards. <laughs> so I spent a long time, a number of years um, writing, you know, continuing to produce. I shot a lot of music videos. Uh, I started the blog and um, 
by way of a, a feature I wrote getting to the right people, I came in contact uh, with a great guy named David Borstein, who um, was a director of development at Dare to Pass. Um, he's since moved on to Film Engine, but we start, struck up a friendship and, uh, you know, I'd reached out to him saying, hey, I'm looking for opportunities. And he said, oh, you know, you should come in and meet with, uh, with Anthony uh, and Matt Weinberg, who's the president of the company. And at the time, they were launching Level 26, which was Anthony's digi-novel um, uh, project. And they were looking for somebody to help out with it and write blogs and, and, and sort of be a part of that process. So that's how I, how I got brought into the company. And um, what's it like working with a company that has such a uh, strong focus on transmedia storytelling? Well, you know, the I like to say that the most, the best part about working for a company like Anthony's is I, in a very short time, have have really gotten to do a lot of things that, in a traditional uh, feature or television development company, I would never get to do. You know, if you start looking at features in TV, there's so many so much politics. There's so many people that are involved. You know, at very high levels, that sort of getting to be a producer or getting to write or getting to direct at that level is just not it's just not possible. So one of the great things about you know doing all this transmedia stuff is is that the opportunities for me to like I just said write, direct, produce and be a really integral part of the whole process uh is just I mean I don't know if there's another company that would have that kind of opportunity. I'm curious. Do you guys use the term transmedia? Uh we don't actually. Um, you know, for, for us, transmedia, you know, in my mind, transmedia starts getting into where you're telling a story over multiple devices and multiple distribution points. You know, you start talking about a website that calls you on your phone or you're reading something on the web and then that shows you a video. You know, I, I, the de definition is still currently being defined. But when I think of transmedia, I think of that. Whereas a lot of what we're doing is taking, you know, some of the aspects of more traditional uh, media like you know short films and and features and and narrative programming that's contained within you know sort of a movie like environment and finding different different ways um, to not only distribute but also to tell those stories. The uh, the level twenty six books has um, video and I think some other components. Are they are they bundled together or do you have to leave the the book to to see the video and does that make it transmedia or die wrong? No, it does. I mean that that by definition, you know, would would factor into or would you know fall under transmedia. What what's interesting about the the evolution of the digi novel from when I got there to when we finished the third book was, you know, fine. When Anthony came up with this idea, the iPod, you know, the, the iPhone, the iPod, iPad, iPod, they didn't exist. You know, he was like, I have this idea of combining these different elements, you know, of taking traditional publishing and traditional filmmaking and making them into one. And at the time, the best avenue for that was a hardcover book and a website that showed you the videos. So in that case, you did have to leave. You did have to leave that experience, you know, that book experience in order to watch. And so if you were on a plane or you didn't have Internet access, it was like, well, when do I watch these? Do I go back? So it was it was a bit of a um, an experiment. And so by the time we did book two, uh, the iPad had been released. And so what we did was we created an app called Dark Prophecy, uh, which is available on iTunes. And you can actually, we combined everything together and then and then stepped it up a bit. We, we had, the, you know, you're reading, swiping pages, you get to the video, you hit play, you watch it, and then you go right back to reading. And then in addition to that, there's all these links to find out more info about characters or more info about evidence. And so um, it actually became a much better evolution of, of ultimately what Anthony's vision was. And you mentioned the word um, 
experimenting. It almost reminds me of a tech startup where it's constantly, you know, pivoting and and adapting to, uh, you know, feedback from customers. How do you look at the experimenting when it comes to storytelling? You know, it um, it's still it hasn't really it hasn't totally changed. I mean, one of the things about digital, which is very different than than you know, tell. I mean, certainly features, but you know, TV's kind of getting into this now. But it's that immediacy. It's the ability to write and direct something, produce it, put it up. Sometimes within a week, get immediate feedback. You know either while you're in production on the next one or before you get into the next one. So, you know, it does, it doesn't significantly impact. I mean, we never got, we've not, never gone into the, you know, gone the route of, of, you know, letting audience sort of, you know, con- not control, but like letting the audience provide storylines or anything like that. But, you know, you are, you are, you are having to be aware of who your audience is and, you know, their attention spans and what their interests are. And when you're talking about doing stuff on the internet or people on their phones, it's tricky because you're like, you're trying to capture them for three minutes at a time, you know, while they're on the subway or where they're traveling or where they're just, you know, waiting for their friend at the movie theater. Um, so that's the trick is how do you, how do you do long form storytelling, you know, but do it in these bite sized bits that allow people to consume it when they want it without, you know, impact without, without sort of cheapening it in any way. Have you done any of your own research on what those attention spans are? You, you threw out uh, three minutes as a number before on uh, your, your most recent project, Cybergeddon, the episodes, I think they're like eight or nine minutes. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's been, what we've seen, you know, we've seen a significant shift in attention spans for viewers on, on, on the internet. I mean, Hulu has been a huge, you know, has impacted that greatly, you know, with a lot of people going to Hulu and Netflix and watching movies, watching television right, People series. are more used to, to watching longer form content on their, their mobile devices or iPads or whatever. Exactly. I mean, a couple of years ago, you know, you had, you had web series like Sam Has Seven Friends come out where they were like, you can't do anything more than like 30 seconds. You know, because people's phones weren't that great, <laughs> you know, and people on the Internet, I mean, Broadway was still like just kind of coming to a lot of households. So they were like, you got to do something really short. Now what we're seeing is the audience behavior is starting to shift for much more, much longer content. But at the same time, the challenge now is not the challenge now is to create content that people are going to want to share not so much that people are going to watch because you can get a lot of people to watch it, but if they're not spreading the word, if they're not telling people to go watch this, if they're not sharing it, then you're, you know, you're really beholden to whatever money you can put behind uh, publicizing it, which in the digital world is just, it's never enough, you know, maybe someday, but right now we're not seeing billboards, you know, um, on the highway advertising, you know, cybergeddon, you know, we um... we are seeing it for CSI, you know, or any of those shows. And so it's, it's, we just don't have the marketing dollars behind us to really fuel, you know, that kind of widespread promotion, which is starting to change with cyber again. We can talk about that in a minute, but now it's like, how do you get people to spread the word and talk about it? And that's really what like YouTube's all about and really about what sort of sharing on the internet has come to be. This is something that I was going to bring up as it relates to Cybergeddon. This is a, a show that's sponsored by uh, it's Semantic, and uh, it's 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 on Yahoo, and I think there's one other sponsor. But was there any other promotional? Uh, was there a budget, a marketing budget beyond just the the sponsor integration type stuff? 
One of the one of the key benefits to partnering with a company like Yahoo, you know, as a distributor and Symantec as a, you know, both as a technical consultant and as sort of a, a promotional partner is reach. You know, Yahoo has a network of 700 million people around the world um, that they can sort of push this out to. Symantec has, you know, they're a huge Fortune 500 company. They're putting Cybergeddon on boxes of software, um, you know, and they're really putting a lot of, that was a part, big part of it, Symantec coming in and saying, hey, not only do we want to help, you know, create this and be a part of the DNA of this project, but we also want to find a way to get it out to as many people as we can. They have a vested interest when it comes to, you know, the notion of cybercrime and how to protect yourself. And we have a vested interest in having as many people see it as we can. Now, is this going to be a model for future projects, almost where you'll have like an advertising agency uh, partner with you or some type of part of your company that is an intermediary to be able to close those deals? I think so. I mean, we've been really uh, – we've had a lot of uh, support from CAA. Um, on this project and uh, and finding those partners to come in and, and really be a part of this. And what's really great about it is, you know, again, we're, you know, these huge differences, which can sometimes be an advantage, which is in a traditional feature model, you're spending, you know, $50 million to, to market it. Um, you don't need those numbers in the online space. And so, you know, they're still sp- putting a lot of skin in the game. They're still really, you know, uh, putting a lot behind it. But you can, you know, we're still finding that, you know, ads are cheaper and, and but they, they sometimes get more reach. And so there is, you know, there's been a huge benefit to that. We've been obviously very fortunate with, you know, a huge agency like CAA to come in and help, you know, pull all these different groups together to, to make it happen. So as... There are more uh, adoption of internet-enabled televisions. Do you think that your content, as you develop it moving forward, is going to be longer, like almost something you compare it to like a half an hour to hour format that you'd see on TV? I think so. I mean, I think that you know when we talked about Cybergeddon, you know what we really want wanted to stress was um, that this isn't a web series. You know, this isn't um, this isn't like this independent TV model web series where we're like you know, sort of doing these little chunks and there's a, there's a, um, a cliffhanger and you're coming back to the next one. This was conceived as a feature film. Um, we certainly were, you know, making sure we were aware of the idea of it being distributed in chunks, um, just to make it digestible to the audience, you know, to sit down and watch a feature is like, you know, really, <laughs> um, on the internet. But, uh, you know, it's 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 really about how can we do long form storytelling about one event. So rather than TV, where you've got 22 episodes or 13, and it's really these sort of independent, you know, episodes, we're really creating this whole that you're just consuming, you know, in shorter bites. I, I imagine that the the script for Cybergeddon did start life as a feature script. You know, um, it actually started life. Uh, for Anthony, he had gone and done a lot of research in the cybercrime world, um, initially thinking uh, of it as a TV show. Um, you know, Anthony was really into uh, forensics, which led to CSI. And, you know, for him, sort of looking at a new way to tell a crime story, with all this research he was doing in Washington, D.C., with the NSA and, and all those guys, he was really finding that cybercrime was this huge threat. And the challenge always with hackers and computer stuff is always how do you make it 
engaging? How do you make it narrative and how do you tell a story around it? So, you know, he had all these ideas floating around in his head and, and we were, we were at the time playing, you know, with the digi novel and playing with the internet video and, and all this stuff. And we sort of were like, well, maybe there's, maybe there's a way to do this, you know, only digitally and only put it on the web. And, you know, that might just, it kind of works as a whole because you got your audiences, you know, watching it on the web and it's about the web. Um, and so that actually, yeah, so actually it really, it really started from a place of saying, I have this idea, you know, is TV really the best model for it or features really the best for it? Well, maybe there's sort of this new, you know, this new uh, uh, screen uh, called mobile that uh, might present some really interesting opportunities for us. So when, uh, now Anthony didn't write the script, right? It was written by somebody else, I think? Yeah, it was written by Miles Chapman, who so, uh, also wrote The Tomb, which is going to be coming out next year. It's the one starring uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone, um, which is going to be, we're calling it the uh, Schwarzenegger-Stallone Heat version. Um, and that's what he wrote. He's been a, he's, he's worked with us before on TV ideas, and, and he just became really that guy to go to. So. so he wrote it natively in all the individual segments. I guess I was asking before if it was a feature script that had to then be, be retrofitted to, to fit this format, but it sounds like it was actually written with this format in mind. Yeah, it was. It was a balance because we had to make sure that this worked as a feature. You know, part of this, part of this, um, making a project like this work is is being able to, uh, you know, take it overseas and take it to TV overseas or DVD or something like that and have it work. You know, f- by watching it straight through, but also knowing that ultimately, or or the the first way anybody's going to see this are in these bites. So we had to not only that was the biggest challenge was how do we craft a ninety minute film. But that also works on these nine-minute, you know, bites. So we actually we crafted the whole story, and then we went. Once we had that, we sort of went back in when we knew where these different points were going to land, these different plot points. So we started saying, okay, well now let's make sure that chapter one, the first ten minutes, actually does have a beginning, middle, and end, um, and leaves you wanting more. If I watch all the chapters back to back, is that going to be the exact same thing as the feature? Or when you cut it together as the ninety-minute feature, will you be able to play around with the? The, I mean, the, the order of the different scenes a little bit more. No, you'll see it. You'll see it back to back to back. Back to back is how you watch it as a feature. And uh, visually, Cybergeddon has this kind of split screen style. This approach is that to simulate a dual screen experience that kind of communicates a very like connected audience. Yeah, I mean, I think we we wanted to tap into you know the nature of of what the audience watching this you know uh, experiences on a daily basis. Diego, uh, the director of the piece, you know, was really aware of that and really wanting to present it in a way that was almost um, that was recognizable to an audience and also was different than sort of what you were seeing you know, in, uh, in traditional features or in television. I mean, you know, uh, 24 did it to great effect. Um, but it was really finding a way to just take advantage of the idea of, you know, that dual screen experience or, you know, even those people that have, you know, right now I'm looking at my computer and I have, you know, Facebook up and I've got, you know, iChat and I've got my mail coming through. And so that, you know, those multi-screen experiences was a, was a big part of how we wanted to have this play to an audience. And there's additional content that goes along with Cybergeddon. These, these uh, you're calling them Cybergeddon zips, and you're behind those, right? Yes. Well, Anthony is behind them. Um, but you, uh, you directed those. Yes, correct. Um, Anthony created this idea of, of you know, how can we, 
how can we expand beyond, you know, just the, the feature? And, uh, you know, through early discussions, that was a big part of it because one of the things was wanting to sort of tell – Anthony is always about how can we tell stories in a new way. And, you know, taking a feature – and and putting it on the internet is is sort of different and unique, but you can also get any feature on Netflix, you know, whenever you want. I mean, even Hulu shows features. And so, what we were looking for was not just the movie itself, but the collective experience. So he came up with these these idea of zips, which you know, again, we're still in the experimental phase. Um, some of them, you know, they're 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 very different from one to the other. Um, in terms of how they're being, you know, how they're being presented, but we wanted to find a way to expand the storyline. So, you know, a perfect example is the McCluskey uh, zip, which just came out today and uh, ties into a character in the film. And the character in the film at one point has this has this one line that, you know, if you never saw the zips, it, it wouldn't matter. It still plays well. But if you went and watched the zips, suddenly you get a whole new understanding of this character and and his motivations and what he's doing and. Um, um, that became that really kind of light bulb moment where you're like, oh, okay, like here's a way to create this collective experience on Yahoo rather than just watch the movie and you're done. You know, because what we're, what we're finding is looking at Lost, you know, and the way they handled not only the Lost experience online, but also you look at like Lostpedia and just the nature of of these worlds that get built out of, you know, George Lucas was a huge part of that with Star Wars and sort of letting that universe expand, you know, in, infinitely. Um, how can we how can we create more content for people to consume? From uh, from a director's point of view, did did you find that you had to approach the the composition of shots differently for something that you know you're shooting natively for web or or the types of performances you're asking to get out of your actors? I just think back to the very early days of TV when the acting was a little bit too large and actors had to learn how to you know get get a little bit smaller for the medium. And the web is even more intimate than TV. You're you're sitting there with your phone; it's right up to your to your face essentially. Yeah. Absolutely. I, rem- I remember um, hearing there was a panel Anthony was on and I was just reading sort of the uh, the the, the um, what do you call it? <laughs> the transcript of it. And he was on it with Sean Ryan and Sean Ryan had a great a great uh, uh, example of this, which was he's like, you know, you're sitting in the editing room and you're looking at this on a 60 inch. Pl- the he was talking about TV. He's like, but you're looking at this on a 60 inch plasma and you got this beautiful wide shot. And he's like, and then I go home to my family in, you know, in Chicago, and they're watching this on a 22-inch tube television, you know. And um, I think that really kind of is a great example of sort of what we're fighting, which is sort of the creative element of saying, let's go with scale and big and like really make this glorious and beautiful. But people are, com- are in some cases looking at this on an iPhone screen, and so, you know, yeah, you are playing more to close-ups, you are playing more to, you know, kind of intense back and forths. And, uh, I think that sort of factored in subconsciously, but I didn't, you know, I never sort of sat down and said, okay, let's just make sure this thing is like chock full of close-ups. I really approached it. Like, how can I just give this a style and, and have it look cool and have it play, you know, in a really, uh, kind of engaging way, um, to an audience, because I, I do think there's a, there is a fine line, you know, I'm close-up after close-up after close-up after close-up, it starts to feel really um, claustrophobic. I actually just got out of, uh, I went and saw The Master today, um, it, which is a huge, very different stylistically for Paul Thomas Anderson from what he's done in the past, which Master is so confining. It's so claustrophobic in a good way. I think that was the point of it. But, 
you know, I, I do think that there is, for me, it's really about creating an engaging visual or an engaging, an engaging scenario. And in a lot of cases, in the case of the zips, that was, you know, you shoot, you shoot close-ups. You shoot these really intense back and forths where you're kind of over the shoulder and you're kind of hiding people and you're kind of finding them as you go. But, you know, honestly, it was with the zips, it was, it was so down and dirty and it was so gorilla and it was so fast that it was really about how can I just, how can I sort of capture what's going on and, and, and then put it together in the editing suite. Now, um, when you watch television, you know, the, the producer doesn't know that much about you, but when you create content for the web, it's a different, you know, way where you could actually know a lot more about your viewer. Do you start as the viewers are coming in, do you get an idea of what your demographic is made up of for the series? Yeah, I mean, I think that we, you know, we ver- that we, we did take that into account. We had a lot of discussion about who was going to be watching this. And, and, you know, we got statistics about, you know, people that are watching stuff online is 60% male and 40% female. Um, but really, it's just about how can you, you know, it, it, it's a fine line because you can't really, if you start catering to the people watching it, you're going to get, you know, what they think they want. Or, you know, or it's going to be sort of a, um, a paint-by-numbers scenario where you're trying to hit all these different demographics, whereas I think that the stuff that really branches out and really succeeds is stuff that, you know, you just create that's really good, you know, that's really engaging. And if you can do that, then your audience is going to come to you. They're going to hear about it. You know, they're going to, they're going to, um, they're going to want to see it. And I think for, you know, this is something that I've sort of come to uh, – sort of formalize as, as we've seen these projects work, which is, you know, to, to me, it's, it's what, what you see popular, what you see that is popular online, you know, the joke is the cat video, right? You know, um, you see uh, the dubstep and the breakdancing and all this stuff that gets 100 million views. And it's a fine line between trying to chase that audience um, because what you're going to end up doing is trying to fake a breakdancing video that you're hoping gets hits. <laughs> or you have a, you have a, a dub, dub step dancing cat. True, you know, which is great, uh, but that's not the industry we're in. So, um, you know, for us, it always comes down to narrative. And the trick is, the trick is how to, how to, how to really make the audience, you know, how to, you know, to me, it's, I was having a conversation with one of my, uh, one of our partners over at Yahoo. And I was saying that, you know, what's interesting about online is that it's, it's not television where you can sort of, you know, uh, market your way to a popular show and then it catches on hopefully, you know, but it's also not the internet where you just hope people, you know, where you, you really want tons of views. You're, You're still after views, but in many ways, it's a balance between achieving those views, but almost trying to do it through the way that HBO does it, which is, you know, HBO doesn't really care how many people, I mean, I'm sure they care, but like how many people watch a show, an episode of HBO isn't necessarily, isn't as important as it is on a network because for HBO, they already have your money. You know, whether you subscribe, if you're subscribed and you don't watch the show, they've still gotten the money that you, you paid for it. Um, but what HBO has really done was create a lot of shows that have become part of the sort of the cultural zeitgeist, like the water cooler shows where people are talking about it. I remember reading when Luck got canceled that everyone was like, oh, it got canceled because it has a bunch of low, you know, well, the horse problem. But really, it, HBO wanted to cancel it because they had a bunch of, you know, the views weren't that great. And the people were saying, well, it, the views didn't matter. What they didn't want was a lot of people talking about a show of theirs where horses were dying, 
that's what they were actually, this is what I read, but that's to me what they were concerned about was the water cooler talk, you know, and how they're being perceived out there by the public um, as opposed to what the numbers are. So, you know, I think what with the Internet, that's the trick is everything that becomes popular on the Internet, whether it's, you know, Charlie bit my finger or the can't, dancing dubstep cat video is all or, or double rainbow is all. Have you seen this? You got to see this, which goes back to what I was talking about when it came down to sharing. You know, it's people saying you got to check this out. You got to see this thing. Oh, my God, this is hilarious or this is sad or this is funny. You know, and and the trick is how can we sort of do both? How can we make this? you know, a part of that cultural conversation where people are talking about it, and then as a result, get views. What makes something worth sharing? I mean, th th this is not, not a question I obviously expect you to have the, a, an answer for. It's kind of a hypothetical question, just sort of throw out there to everybody listening to the podcast. What are the types of videos that get shared? You mentioned a couple types already. It's the cute videos, cat videos. It's it's double rainbow. It's something that makes that that's kind of embarrassing for the person on the other end of the video that we can laugh at. But what makes something shareable in a in a short like a nine minute narrative video like like what you're working on? You know that's that is what whoever finds figures out the answer to that is who's going to own the internet for the next ten years. Um, hopefully it's us. And I don't know, I, personally, I don't know if we have the answer yet. I think that it's, you know, it, it's, it's us going through and finding, you know, that's a big part of, that's kind of what's cool about the experiment, the, the idea of experimenting, you know, I mean, if you, if you create this huge movie, um, that doesn't do well, it everybody sort of knows it doesn't do well. Whereas on the internet, you know, you, the things that take off, like everybody kind of hears about it and the things that don't, you know. I couldn't tell you the, you know, apparently YouTube gets, you know, what, 35 hours of video updated every, you know, uploaded every day. You know, there's definitely not a lot. I mean, I have my own films online that are not getting a lot of views. Um, I think that it's finding, you know, the truth, the truth is in the narrative world, it, it still comes down to marketing. It still comes down to finding a way to get the word out so that people hear about it. Um, you know, when you have movies like Dark Knight, it, it's just everybody knows about it a year out. And then you see all these commercials and you see all the in the trailers are these big events. And, you know, it's hard to it's I mean, I live in L.A., so it, it may be a little different because you can't drive down a street without seeing, you know, the next show that's popping up, you know, and in other parts of the country, it's probably not, you know, to that degree. But it still really comes down to how do you how do you tell people to come and watch this? And then hopefully once they come and watch it, you've created content that's good enough that makes them go, oh, I want to show somebody else this. I've noticed that for Black Box TV that a lot of the, the each episode is a self-contained story versus, you know, like it's kind of like an X-Files when they had the monster of the week versus like the, the one big story for the entire season. And I, Is that intentional so like a viewer could get in at any point of um, watching the Black Box TV content and be able to enjoy it versus – having a ghost start from the beginning? I think so. I think that, um, you know, I found that when I hear about a web series and somebody's like, you got to go check this out. And then I'm like, and then I see that I'm on, they, what they're showing me is episode six. I'm like, well, I don't understand. And do I have to go back and watch the rest? Or is this, you know, is this uh, procedural? Like what's the sort of deal on it? And I ended up sort of, you know, overthinking it and not watching. Certainly if it's, if it's, if it's serial, you know, I go, okay, do I really want to go back and watch all this? But I mean, that, listen, that's what, 
you know, with uh, procedural, which, are, which is funny enough, you're finding a lot of TV moving away from procedural now because of the success of like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and, and, um, and sort of that long arc, and certainly HBO, that long arc, season-long storytelling. But what the, the most popular shows and the shows that continue to get tons and tons of views are the ones that are close-ended. You know, that people can, you can flip on any episode of CSI and just watch it. You know, or any episode of uh, The Mentalist or any, you know, any of those or Seinfeld, you know, you can just watch it as its own. And so with the with the uh, with Black, in the case of Black Box, I think that that was something where we said, you know, Tony Valenzuela, who created the channel, had done so by creating these stories that felt like they were within the realm of a, of a certain world. But you didn't have to watch one in order to watch the other. And in many cases, that's that I think is is probably a really smart move because, like I said, a lot of people are consuming this stuff very quickly when they get home, at lunch, while they're at work. You know, if you have Internet and like you're in New York in the subway, you're watching it on the on the subway and you have five minutes. Um, and it certainly is trying to. You know, it comes down to sort of the philosophy of the Internet, which is the one challenge about the Internet you know, and certainly even now with TV and the second screen experience and everyone's got their phones is how do you keep people watching? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you make it really easy for them to, to watch? And with the internet, you're so distracted, you know, the second an email pops up or your friend IMs you, or you're like, Oh, I wonder what's going on on Facebook. Or you get a minute into the content and you get bored, you know, you're going to flip off. And so the challenge has been, how can we present this to people in a way that they go, yeah, I'll watch something for five minutes. You know, and then hopefully the content is so good that you then go, oh, yeah, let, wait, let me watch another. And, you know, what, what's been interesting about, um, about what we've been doing on uh, Cybergeddon is, is, is hopefully that once the audience comes and they watch five minutes, they're going to watch the whole thing. Um, and that comes down twofold. You've got to create really great, really engaging content that people are going to love and people are going to say, I wish I could see this in the theater. You know, it's a quality thing. And then also present, but also having, you know, it really helps when you see four minutes on that, on that timer um, to say, oh, great. Yeah, I'll watch something for four minutes. Um, obviously, for Cybergeddon, we're thinking of, as a, of it as a bigger event um, to be experienced. But, you know, when you're talking black box and you're talking YouTube, you know, finding a way to, you know, and that kind of speaks to what you brought up before, which is the idea of how do you, you know, you're, you're in partnership with your audience in a way, um, in that way, because, you know, you can put up TV and, you know, however good Nielsen ratings are, however accurate they are, like, nobody knows. Like, you have no idea if somebody actually watched your show or not, unless they actually talk about it. On the web, you know, specifically on Blackbox, is a little different on, on Yahoo, but on, with Blackbox, I mean, we have our audiences posting comments. They're telling us it sucked. <laughs> They're telling us it was awesome. They're telling us how it could be better. Um, and you have a very, very direct relationship with the audience that's, that's you know, been subscribing and or watching your videos. And I think that you can't start getting into the world of, like, adjusting your thinking based on, necessarily based on that response unless you have everyone telling you the same thing. Um, but you do have to sort of be aware that, you know, you've by, by sort of setting up something like this, you're, you're engaging in a contract with the audience in which, you know, that's very direct and they have the ability to provide you with immediate feedback to what they just watched, which is, you know, what's sort of the good and bad about internet, internet video. And, and just to talk a little bit more about 
I, I don't want to say the word hooking an audience because it's kind of a, a, a negative sort of term, but just engaging them and keeping them engaged. You, you have a, a, a blog post that's an analysis of The Dark Knight Rises, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, I thought. I, I was reading this thing, and I found myself nodding along to, to all of it, really. And, and basically what you said is that even if The Dark Knight Rises might have some logical flaws in it, it made you feel something. Yes, and and I had the same reaction to the movie. Like I actually super surprised that I found myself like emotionally engaged in, in a Batman movie. Like I really <laughs> cared what was happening, and I was moved at the ending. And I thought it was the, it was very touching, and uh, in, in ways that the other two Batman movies were not for me. And uh, that you sort of talk about um, Hollywood spectacle, and they sort of leave out this feeling aspect of it. And it just seems like on on any content, but specifically the the web like what you're doing you that's got to be so important to make somebody feel something and with the web the challenge is, is how do you do that in in five to nine minutes yeah definitely i mean my my own personal sort of philosophy as a filmmaker as i've sort of you know adjusted my aesthetic not adjusted that's that's the wrong word as i've as i've come to define my own aesthetic um as a filmmaker and and in terms of the style in which i use but also sort of the type of content that i create um to me i actually i i really believe that feeling has the ability to trump everything else and um you know it's something that i personally felt just as an audience member i mean i was one of those I I, uh, I remember two really um, defining moments for me that sort of helped helped uh, me recognize this, which was uh, one when traffic was out. Um, you know, I mean, years ago, back in '01. But uh, for me, I got to the end of that movie. Um, you know, which is very documentary-like, you know, I mean, it's a brilliant film, but it was very, like, harsh, it was all handheld, it was very, like, you know, it, it was very much like a documentary, and I got to that ending when, um, you know, when, when the character is, when he's sitting, Benicio Del Toro is sitting at the baseball field and watching those kids play baseball and Brian Eno's, you know, uh, a track, uh, an ascent comes on. Like was just overwhelmed. I, I mean, not like you know. I was just like, wow. Like it, it just sort of ended up summing up everything for me and made me actually. It, it affected how I looked back on the film, and 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 experienced that film, and so it was really you know. And then I went back and saw it like five times in the theater, um, because I, I, I what I wanted to actually do was get back to that ending, and then feel that again. Um, and the same thing happened on uh, totally different type of movie, um, which was Gladiator, which was, you know, having gone through this incredible journey, you know, with Maximus, and you get to that end when, you know, hopefully everyone has now seen the movie, he dies, um, and he gets back to, you know, and he goes back to his family, and the way the music, you know, sort of combined with, with the narrative was, for me, again, one of those moments where I was just like, wow, and it totally, it, it actually retroactively affected how I saw the rest of the movie. And, you know, I ended up going back and seeing that a number of times also to get back to that feeling. So, you know, I think that, I, I think that, you know, those types of tools are so powerful and they tap into something that, you know, uh, audiences are always, uh, audiences are looking for. They will always be looking for uh, the ability to connect with the character and to feel something. And I think that's, you know, that's sort of cinema's greatest. It's why people love music. 
you know, like, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of music that you'd sing along to and whatever, but there's also like, there's that music that makes you feel something. And that's why you want to keep going back to it and you want to hear it again and again and again. Um, and you know, so, so as I've sort of found, as I've tried to find a way to, you know, combine how, how in my own work, how the arc of a character, you know, coalesces with the, the, the style of shooting it, you know, and, and most importantly, the music and not in a, not in a, you know, melodramatic way, but in a, in a dramatic way can, can greatly impact how an audience, audience experiences your story. And I think that there are great movies that make no use of that, no use of music and still work. Um, but I really think that it's how it all adds up as a whole. And in some cases, you know, it's really how the parts add up, you know, to the whole. And I think in some cases, if even if those some parts aren't logically correct or are not perfect or, you know, aren't aren't necessarily like necessarily tapping into perfection, so to speak, um, the way in which you sum up what you have just experienced narratively, I think, holds so much power. And, you know, that was something that I tried to do in my short dig. Um, which had had this hauntingly beautiful score by Bill Brown, who uh, was is the composer on CSI New York, um, came in and really, and, and that to me has been the greatest compliment for people of watching it. They sort of get to that end, which which all is all visual. There's no dialogue at the very end, but you know, I, I, I tried to find a way to take the story and have, once you hit that ending, have all of the tools a filmmaker has available to him, the visuals and the music and the sound and, and, and specifically the script and the actors and the way the actors are looking at something, you know, or recognizing something to create a feeling in an audience. And, you know, I think that that can actually, if you're in a place as a filmmaker where you're dealing with flaws in your film or logic gaps or whatever the challenge is how can you how can you use your tools to sort of supersede that because i think that an audience that feels something especially in your climax will actually forgive you for those mistakes if by the end of the the you know by the end of the piece they're left feeling something or talking about something or having discovered something you know either about themselves or about their own beliefs it's sort of a uh adage and, and really any kind of storytelling you give them a, a great opening you hopefully you can keep them engaged and not let them fall asleep during the middle but if you give them a great ending that's really all it takes yeah the, i mean that's you know I, I think robert town said that you know an audience will forgive you for the first 10 minutes of your film but they won't forgive you for the last 10 minutes um you know which i think is very true and the flip side of that as we sort of mer- move into this digital world is an audience will 100% not forgive you for the first 10 minutes, you know, 10 first 10 minutes, meaning relative to however long your project is, you know, if you do not get somebody engaged, you know, in an online space within the first, I'd argue 15 seconds, uh, they're going to click off and find something else. Well, they're in the movie theater, you know, when they're watching like the, the beginning, if they're not sold, they're stuck in the movie theater, they spent 10 bucks, but if they're at home, they're like, it's very convenient to, change it to another channel yeah exactly exactly or go and check their email or you know whatever um so that's you know i think that that's where personally i'm i'm interested in you know as a as a filmmaker and then also just as a producer and as an executive finding ways to to try and get the people that i work with to really um to really you know make use of those tools. Um, a a big, you know, a big compliment to me was, 
I was doing. So, you know, with the Digi novels, we did we did three of them, and the first two were written and directed by Anthony himself, um, not the novel itself, but the uh, the 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 cyber bridges as we called them, and um, he was a uh, very uh, nice and um, and uh, recognized. Um, my abilities and gave me the opportunity to direct, write and direct and produce the cyber bridges for the third book, um, dark revelations. And the challenge with that was to take largely interior based dialogue scenes and make them feel epic and make them feel big. Like they were a part of a much larger world. Um, and, you know, having had, had, having screened it and had people see it, you know, I feel that I was able to accomplish that. And to me, the, what's so awesome about that is I literally would have two actors in a room trading dialogue, which was, you know, hopefully very well written and, and sort of got the viewer engaged. But then through that, with the combination of music and, you know, the combination of an idea. And that's, that is a big part for me of, of, of narrative content as a whole and speaks to Traffic and speaks to Gladiator or any of those movies that, you know, really make you feel something at the end is that it's tied to an idea of some kind. And it's usually, you know, either the subtext of the movie or it's what is this movie really about? What's that underlying story? Is it really about a woman who lost her mother and is trying to prove something? Or is it really about, in the case of Dig, um, you know, a kid who is it really about the, um, the, the idea of revenge and how that impacts you in Dark Revelations? Is it about you know, trying to, us it was trying to take, you know, the, the, the cyber bridges in Dark Revelations is all about the villain. And, but the challenge was how do you make the villain the hero? Um, and actually, I've had people come back and say to me after watching Dark Revelations that uh, the bad guy Labyrinth, that they actually were rooting for him throughout the Cyber Bridges. And to me, that's great because now I'm challenging you as a, as a viewer and I'm, I'm, I'm attacking those sort of preconceived notions that you have coming into an experience and sort of showing you how as a filmmaker I can manipulate that using these tools and using these. And that's not the end goal of manipulation, but the idea being... You know, how can I sort of take the elements available to me, but really make them feel bigger than what they are? And I think having an idea that's grander than just the immediate scene or just the immediate story is actually a big part of that. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. You could uh, email me at catsfilms at gmail.com. It's KTZ. If you have any questions or ideas, you can check me out at petercats.net. Or you can get in touch with me at richsilverman at gmail.com or just visit me at my website. It's richsilverman.com. 